0: Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. In part one of this series, we talked about the Battle of Tulagi, a fight that was short, but fierce, and really wrapped up in about three days, at which point the Marines pretty well had control of the island. That's the opposite of what happened on Guadalcanal, which started slow, but really ramped up over time. Today, we have the story of Private Al Schmidt and his actions during the Battle of the Teneru, the first major Japanese attack on Guadalcanal. Now, Guadalcanal is a pretty big island, about 90 miles long by 25 miles wide, but there's one area we are really focused on, And that's just off the shore, right where the Marines landed, a small unfinished airstrip. The Marines would take this relatively quickly in the campaign, surround it with a perimeter, and rename it Henderson Field. I mean, this is the lifeline in and out of Guadalcanal. It's the reason that we're there in the first place. The landings on Guadalcanal were relatively uncontested. I mean... One of the larger issues for the first couple waves at Guadalcanal was trying to navigate where to put all the supplies and, you know, contrast that to what we would see down the road at Iwo Jima. You wouldn't really call what happened here a contested landing. That's not to say there wasn't any fighting, but, you know, the Marines were able to push inland pretty quickly. And after just a few days, have a perimeter set up around this airfield, not huge one to two miles inland and about four miles across. I mean, that's that's a toehold, really, right? But early on, very early on, they hold the airfield, the airstrip, I should say. Now, the during the landings and just before, there were Korean laborers under some Japanese guards that were doing work on the airstrip. So the Americans are able to capture that equipment and pretty quickly start you know, I guess I shouldn't say start construction, but continue construction to build it up so it can be used. Now, while this is happening, there's another thing going on that's going to pretty seriously impact the rest of the campaign. That's the Battle of Savo Island, a naval engagement just off the coast of Guadalcanal. Now, during an amphibious landing, the Navy is vulnerable to attack because they are stationary, right? They're helping offload troops, equipment, ammunition, supplies, whatever it might be for a period of time. I mean, you have to get a certain number of forces on the ground, on land before the Navy could even consider leaving. And this, this was a point of debate. The Marines, generally speaking, wanted the Navy there as long as possible, right? If nothing else, it's fire support right there, overwhelming fire support just off the coast. You can also bring in more supplies as needed, move your wounded out to the hospital ships, or at least a better hospital aboard some of these naval vessels than you might have you know, hastily set up on Guadalcanal. But the Navy's hesitant. They're nervous. I mean, they understand how you know, the risks placed to their fleet when they're you know, sitting ducks in the channel off the coast of Guadalcanal. The Japanese recognize this as well. And when they learn about these landings, they move to attack and the you know it's the the late night of late in the evening of August 8th early morning hours of August 9th they slip into the channel off Guadalcanal and begin their attack they were unnoticed i think is what i should say it's kind of mixed they were spotted but information came back spotty and not really correctly it doesn't matter the aftermath of this is considered to be arguably one of the worst defeats in U.S. naval history, at least in terms of being lopsided. One Australian and three U.S. cruisers would be sunk pretty quickly. I mean, this this reinforces the Navy's concern about being sitting ducks off the coast of Guadalcanal. It forces the Navy to move, not, you know, as, as, as some might say after the fact, abandon the Marines. It's not so much abandon the Marines, but the Navy, it's no good. The Navy's no good if they get sunk off the coast, but if they can leave and come back as needed, which is what they're going to do here, that's the preferred method. So for the Marines at Guadalcanal, it's not going to be a welcome sight to see, these, uh, to see the fleet take off, but nonetheless, it's going to save the Navy to fight another day, which is going to be needed throughout this campaign. The Japanese also, in addition to the naval engagements, are planning to reinforce Guadalcanal to push off what they expect to be a small number of American Marines on the island. In preparation for this, they fly some reconnaissance flights over the island. The recon flights on August 12th see and don't see a few things. They don't see an American fleet, so you can take from that what you will. They also don't see a lot of Americans at Guadalcanal. They don't see a serious buildup where they thought they might. You know, the beach isn't covered with supplies like they might have expected if, you know, thousands and thousands of Marines had come ashore. What they take from this, and you can see how you can move this in a couple different directions, but the Japanese take from this information that the Americans may have withdrawn. They might have left just a small force there on Guadalcanal. There might not be much you know, there might not be much work to sweep the Americans completely off the island entirely. So they decide to make a move to reinforce the island. The first unit that's going to arrive there is the 28th Infantry Regiment, led by Colonel Ichiki. Hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. They're stationed at Rabal, which is relatively close by. So they're going to be the first ones to land at Guadalcanal. About 900 of his men land east of the American positions. And they're going to, it's kind of back and forth here. Some say that he was ordered to wait for the rest of his men to come ashore. Others say that he just kind of took the initiative and went either way. Nonetheless, he's going to pretty quickly start maneuvering towards the American lines to kick off this battle. This is an interesting part or an interesting time in the Second World War. Because in 1942, the Japanese had the ability to reinforce these islands. This is not the case throughout the entire war. By by you know certainly by 1944 they can't. We're going to land troops on islands knowing that we will eventually take the island. It's just going to be a matter of how long it takes and at what cost. But at Guadalcanal in 1942, one of the reasons this fight was so nasty is you have this island, this is really simplifying it, but you have this island where the Americans are resupplying from one side, Japanese are resupplying from the other side. And right in the middle are the, you know, the Marines and, and Army soldiers and the Japanese forces just duking it out, constantly being resupplied in one way or another. Now, Ichiki decides to go ahead and start moving on the Marine positions because they've got 900. They don't think there's going to be very many Americans there. They also think they have the element of surprise. And he opts to not wait for the other 1,400 of his of troops 1,400 troops under his command. So Ichiki, the 28th Infantry Regiment was about 2,300 strong. He only has 900 right now. The other 1,400 are yet to land, but he takes off anyways. And as we look back now, there's something that, a phrase that's used called victory disease that attempts to describe this. At this point in the war, again, Japan had seen success after success after success, especially in ground combat. And not just, I mean, even talking about, you know, in in fighting the United States. What's happened by this point? They've seized the Philippines, almost seized the Philippines. They've at least cleared out most of the Philippines. They've taken Guam. I mean, they've defeated the United States on land. So, victory disease is the idea almost of overconfidence, looking at past successes and, and almost feeling like it's predetermined. We're going to be successful. Let's go ahead and get this over with. Go. Even though we're waiting on 1,400 more troops. Go now. Now, Ichiki is planning on the element of surprise, which they don't have, because local scouts on the island on Guadalcanal have tipped off the United States to where this attack, to the fact that this attack has happened at all, and where to expect it. It's in the eastern flank. In response, the United States, the Marines, start to build up their defenses in an area known as the Tinneroo or Alligator Creek. Alligator Creek is an area right on the eastern portion of the American lines. And it's kind of a break in the jungle because the creek is there in the sandbar. And it's going to force the Japanese to move out into the open before they come into the American positions. One of the men moved up to the front that day is Private Al Schmidt. He is an assistant gunner for a machine gun section that's going to be absolutely critical in this battle, the Battle of the Tenoru. Schmidt at this point in the war, pretty early in the war, already has a foot infection, which is hard to imagine dealing with that in the middle of a place like Guadalcanal. But he didn't say anything to anybody. He kept it a secret because he didn't want to be sent back to a hospital ship or even kept back from the front lines with his own guys. As an assistant gunner on a machine gun, he's part of a three-man team. There's the gunner, firing the machine gun. The assistant gunner would help often with the reloading, picking out targets, kind of helping direct the machine gunner. And then you have, you know, an ammunition bearer; They would also carry ammo and help, uh, maybe in defense, right? There'd be a third person there, um, helping pick out targets, helping defend the position, maybe from a different direction while the machine gun focused in their sector of fire. So Schmid's one of a few. And they're moved into this forward position along with the 1st and 2nd Battalion of the 1st Marine Regiment right alongside Alligator Creek. In addition to these machine guns and additional riflemen, there's a couple other defensive measures the Marines bring into the fight. One is going to be anti-tank guns loaded with canister shot. The best way to describe this is a giant shotgun. So rather than an anti-tank round or even a high explosive round, it is a giant shotgun that can be placed, can be fired point blank into advancing, advancing Japanese troops. It's nasty. The Marines also use the time to register, pre-register mortars and artillery into expected avenues of approach. I mean, this is this is exactly what you want. If you know the enemy is attacking in a certain area, you make it a killing field. You have the time, you have the resources to do it. That's exactly what the Marines from the First Marine Division are doing as they wait for Ichiki and his men to attack. Which, start, which sort of kicks off just after midnight in the early morning hours of 21 August. Ichiki's lead scouts bump into U.S. positions near the Teneru, and they're surprised. Because given the number of Marines that they expect to see on the island the lines would be spread way too thin if they're all the way out here. So they, they kind of pull back, they consolidate, and around 0 they kick off the first wave of their attack. Private Schmidt and his machine gun section are front and center in this attack and begin firing as nearly 100 Japanese soldiers exit the jungle opposite Alligator Creek, cross the sandbar directly into this preset killing field. We've talked about these human wave attacks before where, you know, it can be a devastating cost like we're going to see here. Nearly every one of these Japanese soldiers was killed, but all it takes is just a few to make it through and you see some success. And in this first wave that was the, you know, relatively, even though the Americans and the, even though the Marines know this attack is coming, there's still a surprise when it kicks off, right? And some positions were overrun. The Japanese did take some forward machine gun and rifle positions that forced the Marines to bring up reinforcements and kind of reestablish the lines. And in this first wave, Schmidt's gunner named Private Rivers was killed. When the lead gunner from a machine gun section is killed, the assistant gunner picks it up. That weapon system is going to be absolutely critical in this fight. And around 0-2-30, the next wave of Japanese attack this time around 200 across the creek this kicks off a 4 hour window where schmidt will be firing as close to non-stop as he can schmidt's other team member is wounded at this point pretty severely wounded so rather than having somebody load these ammunition belts into the machine gun he has to do it himself he has to identify targets reload the machine gun, and pause as needed, firing only in small bursts so as to not overheat the system. I mean, overheat the weapon system. The machine guns are one of the few things keeping the Japanese at bay when they're charging in these human waves. He has to keep the gun up. During this second wave of about 200 attacking, one Japanese soldier made it close enough to throw a grenade into Schmidt's position. It detonated, wounding him in the shoulder, arm, hand, and face. In fact, that grenade would also blind him for the duration of the battle. At the end of this second wave, you saw the same results. About 200 Japanese died without really breaching any of the American positions. But now Schmidt is in an interesting position. He's blinded from that grenade blast, pretty severely wounded. The gunner's dead. The assistant gunner is so severely wounded that he can't even load ammunition into the machine gun. But another wave is going to kick off at around 05. The mortars and artillery are firing, and cheeky decides on a different approach. He's just watched around 300 of his men charge headfirst across the Teneru into the teeth of the Marines' defense. He has a couple different options. He can you know, move inland through the jungle, which is probably expected. That's what the Marines would have anticipated. So he takes, you know, a different path. Interesting decision. He goes out to sea. So the Marines push into the surf out of view of the Marines. Or the Japanese push into the surf out of view of the Marines and try to come around from the water. They're spotted, and once again, as we saw in the first two waves, are mowed down. It's devastating what the Marines do to the charging Japanese. Nearly all of them are killed. By morning, as the sun comes up, there are nearly 200 dead Japanese soldiers laying around Schmidt's position. During this third attack, Schmidt blinded, unable to see what he's firing at, has his assistant gunner, who's too wounded to reload the machine gun, direct him, you know, shift left, shift right, a little up, a little down. He can reload by feel, and he keeps that machine gun going throughout the duration of this defense. After daylight, there'd be a little more fighting for a few more hours. A little more fighting is not the right way to say this there be quite a bit of fighting on both sides of the creek for a few more hours, really with the Japanese on one side and the Americans on the other. No more like charges across the creek at this point until the Marines decide that it's time to counterattack. The 1st Battalion of the 1st Marine Regiment crosses the creek and before long kind of cut off the Japanese into a small pocket and they just start closing in. The Marines are reinforced with aircraft overhead, strafing runs on the exposed Japanese, tanks are brought into the mix, and before long, by 1700 that night, the Battle of the Tenero is Tenero is essentially done. The Japanese attack on the eastern flank of the American position has failed. Now, this is something commonly displayed in a lot of movies and, and books about the Pacific, and we start to see it play out here. There are hundreds of dead and wounded Japanese lying up and down the beaches. And as the Marines move amongst them, gathering intelligence documents from some as they could, or in some cases hearing, you know, another human being call out for help as they're wounded, and they move to maybe treat the wounded Japanese soldier or or gather intelligence documents, some wounded Japanese began firing on the Americans. Or in some cases, they would pretend to be wounded. And when the Americans came by, would try to shoot or detonate a grenade. It didn't need to happen very many times for the Marines that day to start bayoneting and shooting any Japanese that were still alive on the banks of Alligator Creek. And this is something that would carry on throughout the war in the Pacific. It was a nasty fight from start to finish. It was a nasty fight. Private Al Schmid survived the war. Um, he would eventually regain partial eyesight. And for his actions that day during the Battle of the Tenaru, was awarded the Navy Cross. In 1982, Schmid passed away and was, and was buried in the Arlington National Cemetery. Now to talk for a moment about this fight kind of at a high level, because it plays into the rest of our series here, a lot came out of this you know, on both sides in a lot of different ways, the battle of the Teneru forced the Japanese to recognize that they weren't invincible, that they, you know, maybe acknowledge that the Americans are here for real. They came to fight. It gave some confidence to the Marines. You know, we hadn't, there was, there was some fighting on, on Tulagi, of course, but this was a, you know, a confidence boost for the first Marine division to say, Hey, we, we stopped that Japanese attack in our, in their tracks, but it was also terrifying because the Japanese just kept coming and kept coming and kept coming. And they would watch as an entire wave was mowed down only to be followed by another wave and another wave and another. It's the kind of thing that would haunt Marines that fought in the Pacific. What we would see on Guadalcanal was that the Japanese would regroup to learn from this attack, but would be back to fight another day, namely in early September during the Battle of Bloody Ridge. That's next time on War Stories. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to, to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.